standing. Today's second scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of the Lord. If those of you who were here last week uh, remember Dan's sermon, it was kind of, in a way, a kickoff for the new year and a kickoff for this series. Now, he didn't say anything about the series, but I found his message... By the way, Dan's sick this morning. That's why he's not up here, so you can pray for Dan. Uh, I found his message to be powerful and right to the point. So I don't expect that many or any of you remember the three points, but let me rehearse them for you. He basically said three things. He said, be greedy, right? And of course, he didn't mean the kind of greed that is so-called sinful greed. He meant be greedy about understanding God. Be greedy in terms of your relationship with God. Second, he said, live violently. And again, that throws you off. And in effect, what he was saying there is, I think the scripture instructs us to take sin so seriously, our sin, not cultural sin, our sin, take it so seriously that we're ready to do battle against sin. He said a lot more on that point that's very important, and I would, I would advise you to go back and listen to it if you weren't here. The final thing he said was live, no, dress extravagantly. Uh, when he said that, uh, he and I texted back and forth during the week, and I told him it was a great sermon, um, and I couldn't remember point number three. And so he sent me back point number three, dress extravagantly, and, and I did one of the emojis that said nobody would ever accuse you or I of doing that. Um, but 
Of course, he wasn't talking about a suit and tie, which is why I wore a full suit and tie this morning to dress extravagantly to reemphasize the point. He was talking about putting on the virtues of Christ, clothing yourself in humility, right? Dress extravagantly. So in line with those early instructions from Dan's sermon, we're launching a series called 12 Steps of Discipleship. And each Sunday, the title of the sermon begins with the word choosing. Today, it's choosing sides. I could have said choosing light over darkness. I could have said choosing God. But you will notice in both of the passages, Old Testament and New, there's a challenge laid down to choose God. There's a um, very famous historical episode that has extended into the future and has defined a group of people in a particular nation. It's the concept of neutrality. So when I say neutrality, what is the first nation that comes to mind? Switzerland. I heard it all over the place. Even in World War II, when the rest of Europe was engaged in a fight, apart from Italy for a while, against the forces of the Third Reich, Switzerland chose to be neutral. Social critics look at that and say, was that really neutrality or was it pragmatism? Was it neutrality or was it actually profitability? There's no doubt about this fact that the neutrality of the nation has created excessive wealth for the nation. No questions are asked in the same kind of way in that nation concerning banking and inordinate amounts of money. So again, social critics would say that it wasn't really neutrality, it was calculated pragmatism. Whether or not you ascribe to that position is not the point, it's just to raise an issue. And here's the issue I I wish to raise. I use it by way of illustration. Historical cases like this, they might be nuanced, no doubt about it, right? You might ask about profitability or neutrality. But when it comes to the scriptures and God, the scriptures tell an entirely different story about choosing sides as it relates to God. To put it more bluntly, there can be no neutrality when it comes to God. It's either yes or no. Nothing in between. It is, to put it another way, a choice. A choice that is inevitable. And in reality, most of life is like this. We know that, right, in a practical sense. 
Not choosing is itself a choice. But let's focus in on the notion that the choice is inevitable when it comes to God and the call that God places at our doorstep. In the early passage in Joshua, we hear language that is situational and categorical. The people of God are moving into the land of Canaan. They've been through battles or skirmishes, but things are about to get really intense. Jericho and many other things. And as they're about ready to enter this land, Joshua says to them through God, you need to make a choice. We're getting ready to go to this land that God gave us. Now you need to choose who you're going to serve. You either choose the gods that are in this land or you choose Yahweh. One thing that's interesting about this narrative and ancient civilizations at large, it's safe to say that all ancient civilizations chose a god or gods. That seems so foreign to our thinking. We we live in a very secular world. But in the ancient world, Nations, literally, people groups, chose their God. You see, the ongoing narrative of Scripture, apart from the politics of things, the ongoing narrative of Scripture reinforces this view. It reinforces the view, and it does not allow us to consider it an antiquated idea. Something that's gone away. That real neutrality is possible. The Old Testament and the New Testament don't allow us that turn. As a matter of fact, Jesus routinely reinforced the idea. In the words of Joshua, choose you this day who you will serve. Various New Testament teachings are replete with this kind of instruction. You either choose darkness or you choose light. The apostles chose Christ over the Sanhedrin and Christ as Lord over Caesar. Over and over again, the New Testament drops the same language upon those who wish to follow Christ. So the first point. This choice, not just for the people of Israel on that day, this choice right here, right now, is inevitable. You've got to choose, yes or no. My hope is that most of you who are listening have said yes. You've chosen to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like? That's the rest of the series. But the second main point in the sermon is this. The choice takes courage. Remarkable courage. When Joshua was standing on the threshold of marching into the land of Canaan, he got this word from God. Imagine this, okay? A huge leader, bigger than life. Moses, who had received the law of God, was stepping aside. He was going to pass on and he was handing the baton to Joshua and Joshua has to be looking at the land of Canaan and feeling weak in the knees and shaky at best. And God says to Joshua, 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. The Lord goes with you and will never leave you or forsake you. Joshua, I know it's a big job. It's not going to be easy. Neither is discipleship easy. But you have to choose. You challenge the people this way. Now I challenge you to choose courage. Be strong and courageous. And this story is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. The people of God are largely outnumbered by their enemies on any number of occasions. Remember Gideon, the story of Gideon. A guy that God calls to lead his people against the Midianites. And Gideon says, you got the wrong guy. I don't know who you were looking for, but his name is not Gideon. And God, in effect, said, I don't make mistakes. You are the one. I want you to call a group of people together to go out and battle. And, of course, Gideon calls this huge group of people together to go into battle. And God systematically drops the number until there are only 300 men. And he says, now we're ready. Why? Because I am the one that will win the battle. Just follow me. Same story of Deborah and Barak. There's so many of them in the Old Testament. The book of Acts is full of them. The apostles at the early stages after Christ had ascended to the Father run up against religious authorities and are put in jail and whipped. And on more than one occasion, they say to the Sanhedrin or whoever else is persecuting them, I must obey God and his authority rather than human authority. I have no choice because I have already chosen. The result of that choice, it requires courage. Think about this. Every single one of those apostles who made that choice became martyrs, with the exception of John. The choice takes courage, and the choice takes courage, as we see in Ephesians chapter 6, because the battle is even bigger than the Midianites. The battle is bigger than a human army. The battle is against spiritual forces in heavenly realms. If you're going to choose God, you need the courage to take on the spiritual forces of darkness. Once again, we often think ourselves too sophisticated to talk about darkness and light in terms of spiritual forces. We want to think of it in terms of good and bad, but we don't want to think of it. Oh my, we don't want to think of it as demonic. 
We don't want to think of it as invisible beings who are doing harm to others or invisible beings who are trying to seduce us. Oh, we don't want to go there. But the reality of the New Testament is it goes there. And if you're following Christ as a disciple, your roadmap is the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it talks about it repeatedly. As a matter of fact, Ephesus chapter 6 it grows out of another episode in, in the, the city of Ephesus where Paul was there. And while he was there teaching, some religious leaders following Paul's lead decided they would get involved in exorcism. And they went around to cast out demons. And they would say, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, I command you to come out. And there's this wonderful, if not really awful, description of what happened on one occasion, the seven sons of Stephen. The demons spoke to them and said, Paul we know, and Jesus we know, but who the heck are you? And then the demons came out and beat them, and they ran away naked. Don't ask me to demythologize that. It happened. Don't ask me to demythologize my world. It continues to happen. Don't ask me to pretend that it's all up to me and I just have to do the right thing. It isn't. There are forces of evil allied against me and against you. That is the reality. Satan is routinely depicted as a person, not just an idea, a field of force, but as a person. And you, you know what else is true about Satan? There's a sense in which he doesn't hate you. Satan hates God. And if he can get to you, he harms God and God's purposes. We don't fight against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against principalities and powers, spiritual evil. So get on the armor of God. Put it on and use it, and don't go it alone. Because the schemes of Satan are incredible. He masquerades, as the scripture says, as an angel of light, so beware. So the choice is inevitable. The choice takes courage. And the choice, number three, is continuous. We are famous as evangelicals for one-time decisions. Say the sinner's prayer and follow Christ. I don't want to undermine the importance of a decision. But here's what I do want to say. You don't make a one-time decision to be a disciple of Christ. You make a decision to follow time after time after time. You choose over and over again because life is continuous. 
The battle is continuous. It doesn't end until eternity. So the choice must be continuous. In so doing, making those choices, we actually live our way to right thinking about life and God. When we surrender our will and choose to follow in any situation, we learn something about ourselves, about our life, and about God. Something we could not learn by just sitting and studying our Bibles or praying in quiet. We learn by choosing. It shapes the way we think. The final point is this, the choice is consequential. The forces of darkness, they seek your destruction. There's a consistent Old Testament theme for the people of Israel. God, in effect, says, choose me and my ways. If you don't, I'll give you your way, and I'll back off, and you'll see what kind of ruin you'll get into. That, that is a, a picture of discipleship. Christ says, follow me. Here are the choices you need to make. If you don't, you're going to make a mess of things. The forces of evil seek your destruction. It's interesting that 1 Peter says this, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. That's 1 Peter 5, and Luke 22 says Satan wants to sift you like wheat, speaking to Peter. The choice has consequences. The choice has consequences because our choices today shape our tomorrow. Each choice builds on the other. Each choice in discipleship, towards Christ, makes it easier to choose again. You you know, we understand this at at a very human level. Choices have consequences, and choices define our tomorrow. So I've been working for a long time to lose weight. Um, and over the last year, I lost 15 pounds and I feel much better. Mostly it's right here and I'm glad I can show you. No, um, (laughs) but you, you know what makes that happen? It's particular choices and I have to be absolutely intransigent about certain choices. And over the holidays, I stopped choosing. (laughs) I chose something else. And, you know, my motivation is I don't want to be a Scrooge. Everybody's eating that stuff. And I'll probably do it again next year. 
But the reality is that my choices had consequences. Over the holidays, I gained seven pounds. Seven pounds. Just because I didn't make certain choices. We know that when it comes to exercising. We know that we feel better. Speaking of Dan, he always says he feels awful after exercise, but Deontay's going to cure him of that according to his sermon. <laughs> we, we feel better when we exercise. When we're disciplined about doing whatever we do, aerobics or Pilates or lifting or running, we're better off. Our tomorrow is better because of the choices we make today. And that's true as it relates to discipleship. There's something else. It's not just about tomorrow. Our choices have eternal consequences. That's why Jesus' famous statement makes so much sense. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where none of that happens. Because you know what Jesus said? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Our choices have eternal consequences. Uh, Put it more starkly, choosing God is choosing life. A choice against God is choosing death. Because death is the natural order of things. And life comes from an eternal source. God. Our life is like a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But choosing here today has consequences for eternity because our life continues. Just a a final flurry here to give you an idea about what's coming. What are the choices we're called to make as disciples of Christ? I'm not going to list all 12 of them that I have uh, decided to talk about, but let me list a couple. In order to follow Christ, uh, we have to choose to surrender. Or to put it another way, we have to choose surrender instead of control. Control's an illusion, you know that. So choose surrender. We have to choose forgiveness instead of bitterness and revenge. The latter seems to make more sense a lot of times, but the former is God's way. We uh, are called to choose service instead of self. We're called to choose freedom instead of bondage. And of course, bondage is slavery to sin. And we're called to choose humility instead of pride. I don't need to say too much more about this, but you know that's countercultural. It's not the way everybody thinks. To put it another way, in order to be a Christ follower, a disciple, we'll have to live differently in this world than the rest of the people do.
We'll have to, as the phrase goes, march to the beat of a different drummer. My son, when he was in high school, um, eventually graduated in the marching band to a position called center snare. I, di- I didn't really realize how important center snare was in a band, a marching band, a drum line. You know, the conductor or the drum major is standing up on a podium and doing this. You know what he or she is doing? They're looking at the feet of the center snare. It looks like they're running the show, which they are. But what's critical is the beat of that center snare. That center snare's beat keeps everything else in order. So when you think of discipleship, what you're basically thinking of is listening to the beat of God's heart, taking the steps that God has designed us to take. We're walking to the beat of a different drummer. We're weird. As Peter said, we're peculiar people. The third thing that happens when we make these choices is that It changes our thinking. When we make these choices, it changes our thinking about life and it transforms us from the inside out. If you want to follow the mandate of Romans 12, 1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You take steps of discipleship in order for the renewal to take place. The final thing it does, these steps of discipleship do, they, they bring us true life. Or to put it another way, they help us find who we were created to be. Final thought, think of an architect for a moment who designs a building. The builder stays with the plan. Why? Because the final structure has been predetermined. You want this beautiful building? Follow these steps. You want true life? Follow the divine architect who has designed you to live this way. And you'll find your highest joy. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're glad you didn't leave us alone. Honestly, we're not really very good at figuring things out. We've tried and we've made a mess of it. And we routinely go back to the wisdom that you gave to us in the scriptures, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we enter this this series of discipleship steps, help us to see clearly, Lord. Help us to follow completely and help us to be transformed by following you. In your name we pray. Amen.